0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I don't like brown m ms
1: I'm Leah, and I pack my school lunches the night before with hand sanitizer.
0: I'm Cameron, and
2: I'm questioning the characterization provided by which m ms you do and don't like. But <laughs> I am characterized by the presence of an Imperial flag on the wall behind me, I think, quite nicely.
0: I actually, mm-hmm. yes, the very first time we did this, I noticed that first, so... <laughs> There you go. And as for the brown M&M's thing, I think, as I explained to Aaliyah before we started, that it just means that I'm irrational because M&M's don't have flavor, so you shouldn't care what color they are. Oh, okay. I think yeah. it's, I, it's probably a little bit too convoluted to be real characterization. Anyway, so this week, if you have not figured it out, we are talking about characterization. So um, we're going to start out with what makes a character a character why we need to characterize people or, or be thoughtful about doing it rather than it just coming.
1: So there are a couple categories that characterization falls into a couple broad things you want to make sure to cover when you're building a character. A couple of these are their habits and their values, kind of what things that they picked up from their history can give us a good insight, kind of the things they do over and over again. And then also what's important to them.
2: I think one way I like to think about it is that, like, real people are really complicated. There's a lot, a whole life experience that goes into a person. And when you're coming up with a fake person to put on the page, you don't necessarily, I mean, you don't, you can't, like, it's a lot of information to replicate. But so you, so you look for ways that to kind of signpost, like, the big things so that people can get an idea about what a person is about. And a lot of times, the faster you can do that, the better. I think sometimes there's call for mystery, but especially if you're talking about, um characters who are going to be viewpoint central to what you've got going on, it's really important to establish pretty quickly what they value and why. And then also, beyond that, what they want and why they don't have it and what they're going to try to do to fix that issue.
0: I think it's really important to characterize people quickly so that readers know what to expect from a character, so that even if they're surprised by the plot or by the way people act, they're not surprised in a way that takes them out of the story so that they can always consistently expect your character to act in a, in a way that I've said consistent so many times in this sentence. Be <laughs> <He> just
2: <consistently laughs> consistent about saying consistent.
0: Exactly. I'm very consistent about saying consistent. That's good characterization, too. There we go. <laughs> so you don't want your readers ever to be taken out of the story by something that your character does. That's when you get plots-moving characters, because, because the author has... A set storyline they want to happen without considering what the character would do in the situation. So I kind of want to talk about how we go about characterizing people though, because it's not that cool to be like, this character is Christian, and they have a heavy sense of moral rightness. However, it's only their own code, and they don't apply it to other people. Or you know, It's not cool to have a bullet point or to have it be really super overbearing. So
2: I think I it's think part of that, because we were talking about like it's important to get characterization across quickly. So with what you were saying, and what I'm going to add now, is a giant caveat in that it, it, it's a dynamic you have to play with. Because the more important the characterization is to the story, the more you want to show it rather than relying on telling it. So, maybe it's slightly in a different vein. A problem that a lot of new authors will get into really quickly is they want to have a character who's just awesome, that's just awesome about something, and so we'll say, this person is an awesome detective, or this person is an awesome sword fighter, or this person is an awesome survivalist, and we're just told that, and... In most cases, it's extremely unsatisfying. When you want to have a character who's going to have a trait, like, this is the best swordsman in the entire country. You want to see that. You want to see a fight. You want to see training or something. You want to see people's reactions to that status. If you rely on just being told, and he's the best ever, it gets boring really quickly.
0: Like, if you've ever seen the movie Kubo and the Two Strings, within the first probably 15 minutes of the movie, it shows, instead of saying, like, Kubo was an amazing storyteller, and he had this amazing magical talent that had to do with these strings, it shows him interacting with his mom, and it shows him in a normal situation, and then it puts him in, like, this crowd situation where he's telling a story, and he's using magic to tell the story. He has these little pieces of paper that fold up and, like, run around and tell the story with him, and so we get to see both his magic and how good he is at the storytelling part of it.
2: I think I can think of a couple other examples on the top of my head. So I think BBC's Sherlock mm-hmm. and this is really early on, like the first episode, was like, you know, Sherlock, when who is Sherlock? What does this actually mean? And he reads Watson the first time he sees him and then breaks down how he did it and that demonstrates or shows the confidence rather than just say, I'm amazing. Now let's go do stuff.
0: Though so he does say that, that too. That's
1: true. That's <laughs>
2: That's so true. true. But, but in the but so
0: The fact that he does that is also also characterization.
2: I'm I'm amazing is characterization. So rather than just having other people say, oh, he's amazingly stuck up, you see it in action. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The other example I was going to make, which is kind of similar, is looking at Kaz's introduction in Six of Crows. Within the first action-ish sequence, he outsmarts his opponent six or seven different ways. You kind of lose track, and it demonstrates that, okay, there's a reason most of the city is scared of the 17-year-old kid because you watch him be terrifying rather than just being told oh he's scary you, you you see why people are afraid of him
0: it also shows that he's really rash like that he takes big risks he goes and like shoves someone gun someone's gun like up against his chest and is like yeah go ahead shoot me and then lies mm-hmm. about how he's about what he has set up like he he's got a lot of bravado
2: rash. he's a, yeah he's an immense amount of self confidence which also comes across it's it's a great one of, Part of the reasons why it works, which leads into, we're talking about how you bring in natural ways to show, is you have this crisis point where his life's on the line, his friends might be a bit strong of a word at that point, but his compatriots' lives are at the line, the lives of his opponents are on the line, and with that tension, it's much easier for the author to bring out what the characters want and, wh- and how they go about trying to get it.
0: Actually, Kaz is a really good example of something else we're going to talk about a little bit later, because in that scene, it's shown very strongly that he's very transactional in his relationships and does not care about other people very much and just assumes that they're all going to fall in line with what he wants. And he expects a lot of people. And one of the things that you want to show in your characters is character growth. And that's one thing that he definitely changes in over the course of the two books is he becomes less transactional. Spoilers. And
1: that makes a, a lot of sense to me. I just think about the books or the movies that I've liked the best. And I do enjoy when they start on an action sequence. But to me, they're really good if they start in an action sequence that shows off the character to the best advantage, kind of like those examples you were talking about.
2: So action is, I think, very different from tension. You can have a very tense scene where there's not a lot going on physically. So in the Kaz scene in particular, most of it is just them talking to each other. But there, not, are no, there are guns. There are guns. Guns. But, 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 there's no <laughs> but
0: tension, yeah.
2: And you can have, I think, you can have action that is isn't tense as well. It's important not to mistake the two.
0: Yeah, because if you have like a big battle scene where people are killing each other and there's lots of action going on, but you don't know who anybody is and you don't care, it's Mm -hmm. not very tense. It's just a bloodbath that you don't really care about. I actually had a really cool characterization thing that I wanted to read. Something that I wanted to talk about is that characterization needs to come about naturally, like in the course of the book, rather than to have a laundry list of things that your character is. And one of the the short story is actually that I feel like does a really good job of this is called the things they carried by Tim Mm O'Brien. And it's about this group of people in Vietnam together during the war, not just randomly in Vietnam. And he talks about each member of the crew and characterizes them based on the things that they carry. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It says first Lieutenant Jimmy Cross. This is the first line of the story, carried letters from a girl named Martha, a junior at Mount Sebastian college in New Jersey. They weren't love letters, but Lieutenant Cross was hoping, so he kept them folded in plastic at the bottom of his rucksack. Which I think says a whole lot about this kid, just, I mean, in two sentences. And then he goes on to say, after um, giving a list of things that everybody had to carry and how much they weigh, he says, Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap. So, I mean, that tells you both a whole lot about him and about everybody else in the troop. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Fanko. And then we have Mitchell Sanders, the RTO, carried condoms. Normal um, Balker carried a diary. Rat Kylie carried comic books. Kiowa, a devout Baptist, carried an illustrated New Testament that had been presented to him by his father, who taught Sunday school in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As a hedge against bad times, however, Kiowa also carried his grandmother's distrust of the white man, his grandfather's old hunting hatchet. So you have all of these characters being introduced, like, super fast. And each one is given like this little thing that they're carrying. That's just a thing, but it says a whole lot about that person.
1: I think that's interesting, too, because all those things you mentioned, they weren't coming from inside the person. They were characterizations from outside in the scenery. And so sometimes I think if we're writing and we can get stuck in someone's head, there are so many different ways to characterize someone than just the way their thoughts are phrased.
0: Yeah, it's definitely about like the way they walk or the things that they notice as I was thinking about this, I mean, you could have your character walk down the street and based on the things that are important to them or the things that they're frightened of or the things that they want in life, I mean, you could have them pass like a pen full of puppies. And based on who that character is, they're going to react really differently to the puppies. Like you could have someone who was attacked by a dog as a child and they could like wrinkle their nose and like think the puppies smell and then startle back if one of them barks versus someone who goes and picks one up.
2: With the addendum that I think it's important to... Keep those things that you're using to show character also have them be plot centric at the same time you can get away with a few like a little asides here and there but if you want to have every piece of prose do as much work as possible so in in that example you just read like it talks about and this guy got shot outside or whatever that's going to come up later and it's going to be well I say because I read that as part of a short story compilation so I don't know if it comes back up in that short story but it comes up again in a different short story and so yeah. if you read them in that order it brings gravity to the thing.
0: The things they carried is part of a group of short. It's in a book of short stories, and so I think the point is to read them all together.
2: Well, I think the things they carried was originally published separately. Could oh, be. Really?
0: Wrong, but now I want to go look. I have it sitting right here, so I'm like, I have to it figure goes. it out. All of the thing. I think that that's really important, especially when you're first introducing characters, is that everything has to be relevant. Like something that I noticed in our submission today, actually, which we'll talk about later, is that there are details that are added in that are just like dialogue tags or blocking tags that are just there so that it's not just he said, she said, whereas if you are actively trying to characterize and show details and world build and stuff like that, every single sentence you use should be doing work. It should be showing something about the character, especially in those first little bits. So why do we want, we talked a little bit about this earlier. um, Why do we want characters to change? Why do we need a character arc? Maybe we should define what a character arc is first.
2: It's when the character is one way and then they're not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's progressing, but sometimes it's not, depending on what kind of story it is. So, the thing is we just like stories about change. Like the Bible,
1: Shakespeare, any good good things that the human mind latches onto, they're all about change and the power there.
2: At least at least for me, I like books where there's stuff happening. Like stuff that is is, is world shaking and if you have a character who's experiencing traumatic events and they don't react to it it makes them not feel real like if you have someone in a chosen one narrative who goes from being a farm boy to having importance on a massive scale and like the events that lead through that that person should change because of the stuff they're encountering so if your character is not changing then you have one or two or both things possibly wrong maybe your conflict isn't conflict enough
0: or it's or not directly char- related to your character enough.
2: Mm-hmm. Or maybe your character isn't reacting to the conflict in a realistic way. Because people change. With losing a parent, it changes you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> getting, getting chased out of your hometown, it changes you. You know, having your worldview shift from, oh, vampires are a thing. Something's going to change about your character. One What's- of
1: the best ones, I think, is Edmund from the Chronicles of Narnia. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, he He makes a bad choice, and that bad choice changes him. I think that's very interesting.
0: I think that something that bears mentioning, actually, on any of our episodes, is that a lot of this stuff is stuff that comes during revision. I mean, I discovery write characters. I'm in the middle of writing a book that's from three different perspectives. I had to figure out how to make them change, and I had to find their voices, and I had to find, like, that arc. And there's a lot of revision that's happening. Like, I start in one place, and I'm like, this is what this is going to be about. And then I write and write and write, and I'm like, no... And then I have to go back and do like a continuity edit on all of the voice and stuff. And so it's okay if you start out not quite knowing who your character is or what your characterization is Mm going to look like exactly. It's okay to fix it later. A lot of the things we talk about are things that you want to look at after you've already got a first draft. Mm -hmm. So uh, another question we want to talk about is how to make a dislikable character a good character.
2: Or at least fun to read about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good is a moral judgment, which doesn't apply necessarily (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, one of the things
1: that will instantly make me dislike as a character, a dislikable character, is if I feel they are just used to put the character we're meant to like in a good light. If I feel like they're just placeholders to kind of show that contrast, then instantly I'm just going to dismiss them. But if I feel like they have a character arc on their own, and if I can get a sense of that characterization, just like the main character would have, then that's something that I like a lot more.
2: Was that on the podcast? I'm trying to remember. I remember there... I, I seem to recall there's a submission we had a long time ago where we were talking about. It felt like we had two central characters who were really well-described, but then there was, like, this... There was there was a girl in the same scene who it seemed like she only existed to be, you know, a cardboard cutout of this guy has a girl. Look, he has a girl, and make judgments. And it, because she had so little detail associated with her, it was like, okay, she's there to be a prop. And that's just not good writing.
0: <laughs> well, and I feel like that's why so many... If you remember all of like the fury and excitement, not fury, fur, that's probably a better word, over Wonder Woman, where everybody was like, oh, good representation for women in action movies. It's because there have been so many action movies where there are women like, wearing almost nothing that are pretty much just a prop for the main character dude to look cool. And nobody likes to be a cardboard cutout. Nobody really likes reading about cardboard cutouts. And so it's always better to have all of your characters be real people, even if they're only there for a minute in your book. A minute is the wrong kind of like a sentence. How about that? Or a paragraph.
2: A <laughs> thing, a thing to keep in mind especially for using a tight perspective is that if you have characters who are kind of really flat and superficial, that bleeds over into what people are going to think about your viewpoint character because if your viewpoint character is seeing people as if they're flat and superficial, then people are going to assume even even if not uh, consciously, they're going to assume that your protagonist also thinks most people are fake cutouts. And that doesn't necessarily make them interesting. I mean, well, it does could. it make them very I mean, sympathetic? You do it deliberately. But the point is you want to be conscious of the fact that how you portray people. Maybe that's maybe something that we should have led with. How your person thinks about other people in general is going to say a lot about them. So you want to be careful mm-hmm. how you portray that.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, if you're in a tight, like, first or third person perspective, then all of the characterization is going to be through the lens of your character. Like, their voice is going to color how we as readers think about everybody else. And it says a lot both about the person who is talking and also about the people that they're watching. And so you have to be careful in both directions. You don't want to have an unintentionally narcissistic character who doesn't realize other people are humans. Another thing about making dislikable character or characters that aren't necessarily like people you'd want to be friends with in real life, to make them good or characters that are interesting to watch, I think is making them sympathetic. Um, one thing to do that is just being in their point of view automatically makes a character more sympathetic. Um, also, I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but being able to see their goals and the stakes, like what happens to them if they don't accomplish their goals, then you're automatically on board with them a little bit because you want to see them succeed.
1: Exactly. I love what you said about stakes, kind of building off that what they're afraid of, or if you get a chance to see them vulnerable. Even if it's not around the main character, just in a in perspective shot, um, it can really help you feel for them as well. I think humor I'm
2: helps gonna, with
0: that too. Oh, go ahead. I'm gonna raise the
2: level of seriousness in the room one notch. So I was just recently finished playing Vampire, which is a new game that came out. There's a whole lot of stuff based around conversational interactions with lots of characters, and I was struck by there was one moment where you witness like this really big burly guy essentially uh, roughing up this scrawny shopkeeper, and so. Your initial interaction is, ah, okay, maybe here's someone I can eat and not feel bad about it. Spend a little bit of time talking to him and you realize that, oh, he's doing this because his emaciated son is starving to death in his house. And he needs money and this is the only way he knows how to get it. And suddenly you're sympathetic for him. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you eat him, I guess depends on the player at that point, but <laughs> it, it stood out to me as an example where it's like, okay, you've got like the most stereotypical person, you know, it's the faceless thug. How am I going to be empathetic with this? Oh, all you need is a slight peek into why they're doing what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. if you want it to be sympathetic, you
0: can do it. One of my favorite characterizations of all time is also in Six of Crows. Apparently we're Six of Crows eccentric today. The first time we see Mina, who is a heart render, so she can kill people with her hands. She can like stop your heart by squeezing her hands. The first time we ever see her, she's sitting in a brothel. She lives there. She's not a prostitute and isn't a part of any of that. But she's sitting there with her shoes kicked off, eating a piece of cake. And Kaz comes in and is trying to pitch this big heist that he wants her to be a part of. And she continues to eat her cake. Like, through the whole scene, she's just like, I love this cake. And I think that that tells us a whole lot about her. That she's like, she's interested in what he's talking about. But but she really loves life. And she loves food. And she loves people. And that's very consistent throughout the rest of the book. I just wanted to throw that out there. The author used that one tiny little thing. Like with her with her shoes kicked off and eating cake to show Mm -hmm. a whole lot about this one girl in a very short time. Well, it's
2: interesting because further, it's it's not just that her love of food is prevalent, but because that's how she's introduced, it sets up a really powerful contrast with stuff you learn about her backstory, Mm -hmm. where she was not always in a position to have her shoes kicked off eating cake. And so it, it creates a contrast, which creates distance between where she was and where she is, and it makes the character feel alive.
0: Okay, we had a listener ask how we characterize a villain without going into cliches like kicking puppies. And I did just want to throw this out there that Stephen King does that. <laughs> well,
2: that's probably why the phrase.
0: That's probably true. I just wanted to say, in Dead Zone, he has that Bible salesman when he realizes no one is around and he's angry, go and kick a dog to death. So we know he's yeah. the bad guy. Anyway, um, so what do you guys think? How can you characterize a bad guy um, and show that this is a person we don't want to be on board with that without resorting to cliches?
1: I think probably one of the easiest ways is just to make sure that everything he or she does lines up with their motives. Mm -hmm. So not have them do something evil just so the character or so the readers can know that the villain is evil, but have what they want figured out first and then have them act on what they want.
2: Mm -hmm. I think there's like, it's notable that if the, if they are doing something evil, like, like you were saying, it needs to be linked to the character and something that you can see as a thread throughout. So if, if, Someone is randomly torturing cute animals. That's a specific psychosis. And it needs to come up and it needs to be part of the development of that person. It's not just, oh, he's evil, so he's just going to kick a dog because that's what evil people do. Not, that's, It's <laughs> not, this is not, not quite how it works. If you've got someone who, see, in, in general, I'm just not a believer in the monologue. But if you're going to have a villain monologue, you need to set up that they, at least, again, I think it's so overdone. I'm not really sure it can be done well without parody anymore. But if you're going to have a villain who monologues set up, somehow show that they like hearing the sound of their voice and that they're doing it because they like talking. They're not, not because they're doing it, not because they think villains should do it. Unless <laughs> of course you're doing a parody.
0: Like the Incredibles. <laughs> like the Incredibles. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Where <laughs> that is the point. That villain's monologue, so therefore I'm going to monologue so you know I'm a villain. But that's an in-world meta, if you're... Anyway, you get the idea.
0: But I actually really like the connection you're making there. That characterization of a villain is exactly like characterization of your protagonist. Whatever it is that you're bringing to the front, whatever it is that you're trying to show something about them, it needs to be connected to the plot and to what's going to come up. So while you might not have them kick a puppy, you might have them do something else that's not very nice, like ignore someone who is trying to talk to them or not value other people's perspectives. Or like they could be a villain that's a really sympathetic villain that is just at cross purposes with your protagonist. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you necessarily need a villain to be like cackling with like their big vampire cloak. They just need to be doing something opposite what your protagonist is and that automatically makes your reader not like them. So let's move on to the second portion of our podcast where we do a first chapter critique. Just a quick review of how we do critiques. We try not to be prescriptive, which means we try not to tell people how to rewrite something. We just try and identify places that we don't think the storyline was working or the character was working.
2: This is where there's potential for improvement. Things that deserve a second look.
0: Yes, things that. Just- Thank you, Cameron. If we are prescriptive at all, we'll just tell you that we're being prescriptive, and to ignore us. So, because all of us apparently can't handle not saying the stuff that we think. <laughs> we just love the stories too much.
1: and to get our hands in it.
0: Yeah. Um If you'd like your first chapter critiqued, you can find our submission guidelines on our website. It's litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash lit nation. So a summary of our submission for today. We have three ghost hunter killer people. We're not really sure exactly what it is that they do yet, but they go into a house in order to subdue an apparition that has apparently been eating people. They're interrupted when two policemen show up in order to feed a body to the ghost. Um, That's what Uh, Yeah, I thought the scene came together really well. I mean, we had lots of tension and lots of action and lots of very scary images. I know exactly what this book is going to be about and what the tone is going to be like. There were lots of really great promises made as a first chapter should. I know that based on some of the language that we're kind of in maybe a post apocalyptic world, I'm not sure about that, but at least a paranormal, like fantasy ish. World, because they've mentioned that there's a whole block cleared out. I wasn't sure if that was because of the ghost or if it was because of something else that had happened that allowed the ghost to move in. But it it has me asking the right kinds of questions. I also really like the mystery of it. I'm really excited to find out why policemen. I think they're policemen. He calls them detectives, and so I'm assuming that's what they are. Why they're trying to feed bodies to a ghost, and we find out by the end that it's not even a dead body. It's just a person that they're feeding to the ghost.
1: And you know, we only get to see the ghost for a little bit, but I just think the ghost throughout is really well done. And The ghost makes all these noises, and for the listeners, there's a, a nice line, the thin rattle of a wet, ragged breath. Oh, and so you nice. just get this real imagery of what this ghost is looking like and what it's doing to make those sounds. I thought that was
0: really well done. Well, and it's a good, I mean, it's using lots of different um images that evoke, like we've got sound, and then it's also like the feel of it even. It can mm-hmm. well,
2: I think, on a, I think on a on a extra sensory level, I was I was impressed by how vivid the the place of the action
1: is. I was going to say I noted down that there was really good blocking in the house. I felt like I could picture clearly when they were going down the stairs and through the hallways and things. So. I thought
2: it was interesting. Um, assuming this is what the writer was going for, I I like this kind of balance between. On the one hand, we get we get descriptive details like how when they're going in. One of the characters has uh, her hand on the other guy's back. Um, stuff that makes it seem like they're competent. Then other stuff about how like, the one guy's not so happy that they're doing this and is obviously having some fear issues. And I thought the mix of the two created a really nice image of, okay, so these people know what they're doing, but they're not hyper-competent, which made the whole thing more relatable for me.
1: I definitely agree. I'm really interested to find out if these guys are are like the good guys or the bad guys or kind of their place in society, but I'm really interested to know.
0: If they're vigilante, they're part of a bigger Mm. organization. I mean, we don't know how ghosts play into the society yet, but it's interesting that more than one group knows about them and has a different approach to how to handle them.
1: I loved the idea of a door wedge made specifically to keep ghosts from closing the door. I thought that was
0: awesome. Yeah, there's a, a little thing that they insert into the door that keeps it open, and it's the only door that stays open when the ghost comes out. So do we want to move on to things that need a second look or do we have anything else? So as longtime listeners of this podcast know, I am not a huge fan of omniscient POV, and this was a hundred percent omniscient, <laughs> which very much so which I actually thought it was handled pretty well. I had my typical problems with it, and so you can take or leave them depending depending on what you want to do with your story. I feel like with an omniscient perspective, it's really hard to get close to your characters and feel sympathetic. Um And in this one, we had a really limited omniscient, so we don't have any thoughts at all. We only see where all of the characters are. It's almost like looking at a game board where we know where everybody's standing, except for the ghost, actually. We only see the ghost. Like, it, we see it's like omniscient from the three people's perspectives. If the three people can see it, then we can see it, too. I do feel like it was a little bit inconsistent. There was one point where we have three characters. One of them is a girl who says... Next to Winston, Sharisa shifted. Her hands felt sticky around the grip of her pistol, and I feel like that is the only emotional tag that I got through this whole thing. Actually, was her feeling nervous was that's the only time I saw any emotion from anybody, and it was something that I figured out, which was it was well placed, but that was because there weren't any other tags like that. I felt like it fell a little bit out of place.
2: It's a good show, but it's inconsistent with the rest of the
0: honestly i would have loved it if there were a whole lot more things like that from every yeah, single like character it
2: was tight first person in one of their heads so
0: mm-hmm. i agree i feel
1: like for me the issue was that sometimes we would be with someone but a lot of the time the action just took place in kind of a, a nebulous ambiguous perspective and i feel like i could i could appreciate the omniscience here if if all the action was tied to at least someone instead of sometimes being tied to no characters,
2: I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like I'm more omniscient tolerant than you
1: two
0: are. <laughs> omniscient is okay, and like I understand my own biases, and so yeah, there you go. So most of my notes were just about that. I I have a hard time when I don't see any interiority. I don't. Under- I have a hard time like registering the level of threat. I mean, we see someone get torn apart right in front of them and we don't have a whole lot of emotional tags from any of the characters. Like we have one guy at the very beginning, it's shown that he's kind of scared, but after that, I mean, they're all just like business as usual. I
2: do think that's fair. It for me, well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if I was if I had just kept reading, my assumption would have been that they're mostly cool with what's going on, which I mean, so it depends on if that's what if that's what the author is going for or not. So if you're okay with a kind of really jaded experience of what's going on, which is kind of how I read it because of the lack of emotive detail, then that's okay. But if that's not what you're going that's to, true. You probably you should look at. Then there goes the prescriptive stuff. But, yeah. <laughs> okay, more ways <laughs> That's definitely good. true. Because I'm really not sure how, what the emotional reactions were to watching this guy get eaten. And get I eat definitely fur, get the
1: jaded feel to. too.
0: Yeah. And almost, like I said before, it's almost like watching like a, a third person, like shooter game, almost, or like even more than that, where you have more than one character, like an RPG, because you're inserting yourself into those characters, and that's why it's okay to have it that way. But because this is a book, and we're only experiencing it through the perspective of these people, it's hard to insert yourself into that. I mean, you can, and authors hope that you do, but because we don't have, I mean, you can.
2: I think you can maintain the distance and still get close, because we're going to extend the video game metaphor. I think XCOM. Uh, Enemy Unknown and XCOM 2 do a fabulous job getting emotional reactions from a third person omniscient, but you can only see a squad's perspective.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Anyway, so I have no idea if the author is going to have any idea what XCOM is, but
1: yeah, I if mean, you're I... looking
2: for something to maybe maybe look at how they get emotion across from a distance, that might be a thing that maybe sort of, mm. anyway, yeah. I won't shut up now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's probably unfair to say that I don't care for omniscient when I've only seen the first chapter. So there you go. I mean, authors can pull off anything, right? I mean, there are whole books that are in second person and there's all sorts of stuff that you can do. And it's just a matter of, this is my reaction to this first chapter. Part of it's me, but part of it is, I think you do need a little bit more. This is prescriptive. Emotional reactions on the page. (laughs) 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 We're being really bad today. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay,
1: well, moving along then. (laughs) I, I guess the other notes I had were just really small line level stuff there's a line where they're going into the house and one of the characters turns to the other and says, stay close, Chica. They say this one eats people too. And that was clarified later on that it was the ghost. But at the time I was just confused on what it was. But then also, um, this is just small stuff, but later on, one of the characters looks out the window and he sees the two men coming in, carrying a body. And he says, I think they're detectives. And then later they're surprised that the people would be feeding the body to the ghost. And so it made me wonder why he thought they were detectives and if this is something that detectives usually do in the world, why they were
0: surprised later on. I think something that Aliyah and I both tagged is that we assumed that the woman was dead and I, I didn't realize that she was still alive. I mean, she gets dragged up the stairs and her head hits every step and I mean, there are lots of details that make me think this woman is dead. And then when she after she falls down the stairs, when the ghost attacks the person I think who was carrying her, it finally says at the base of the stairs, the comatose body of the woman splayed out in jagged ankles after likely tumbling back down with the man. That's the first time I realized she's not dead. And I wasn't sure, like, there's no emotional reaction from the character. So I don't know if I was supposed to assume she was alive the whole time or if they just realized that she was alive. But because we're too far away from the characters, I don't know.
2: For me, it was it was one of those things where in retrospect, I say, okay, there was nothing that explicitly said she was dead. But they because did refer the to
0: her as
1: a body.
2: Right, right. Well, again, that doesn't. I have a body. That doesn't matter. I, I know, but, their point, their but their point, their my point, point, my continued point, being is that the the connotations of it, the word, if someone's carrying, if you use the phrase "carrying a body," you generally assume that they're dead. There is an assumption there.
0: I think I would be totally fine with this realization as long as somebody has it other than me. If one of the characters has that realization, it's like, oh, she's alive. I mean, then that's fine. That's true. I felt the same way. I don't want to be the smartest person. That
2: be. I think that would be, I, I be pretty cool. <laughs> the which is. Response, not prescription, is a difference. We should talk about that difference at some point.
0: We probably should. Response
2: versus prescriptive advice.
0: It was a really cool submission. I loved The Ghost. so scary. And I would be really interested in reading the rest of the book. And I would love it if it made me love Omniscient POV. (laughs) So I'm waiting for that book to happen. Personal
2: challenge to you, author.
0: Yeah. Couple of announcements in conclusion, I guess. Next week, we will have another special guest. Yay. So you'll have a chance to um, have your work critiqued by another published author. And this time it is Caitlin McFarland. Yay! Yay. So she'll be on the podcast on June 26th. And if you remember a couple of months back, we did a podcast on romantic tension and it failed miserably because all of us are not romance writers. I mean, we kind of <laughs> talked about it and we're like, yeah, maybe that's how it is. So maybe we.
2: That's- Somewhere, someplace.
0: Yeah. And so we decided to have an actual author who's good at writing romance come on the podcast to talk about this. So if you write romance, or even if you don't, and you have romantic subplots, she's probably a really good person to read your stuff. That's June 26th. You'll have until the 20th to submit your first chapter. If you want to have a chance for her to submit it, if you want to find out how to submit your stuff, it's on our website, as we mentioned before. We will post this both as a YouTube video and as a podcast. And you can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever other platforms you listen to podcasts on. We'd really appreciate it if you leave us a star rating or and a review on any podcasting platform or on YouTube. Leave us comments. You can ask us questions. You can also hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I think that's it for this week. So for Lit Service, thank you for listening. And we will see you in two weeks.